Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Canadian Federation of Students has launched a legal challenge against the Ontario government over the decision to allow students to opt out of certain fees. The Beer Store has issued a report on what will happen if beer sales are opened up to corner stores. And also, another rally held outside the Barton Street Jail last evening fighting for changes in the correction system. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, Canadian Federation of Students has launched a legal challenge against the Ford government over the decision to allow students to opt out of certain fees. This was all part of the announcement they made a few months ago, of course, about uh, lowering tuition. And uh, what they said was giving students more choice. Well, the Canadian Federation of Students have launched this court challenge against the government uh, because uh, they, along with the York Federation of Students, have filed a notice of application saying this move is actually going to cut funding for student associations, for campus newspapers, for student legal aid clinics, and and a number of other uh, processes that are available on campus. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, thanks for coming on. Good to have you with us again today. Hey, Bill. How are you doing? Good. Uh, Not the first group to sue the government because of some of their policy. Probably not the last. Does does this sort of thing, this legal action, do anything to intimidate a government? Uh, just before we begin, I think you have to take a number now to sue the government, don't you? <laughs> Pretty much. Anyway, no, this is, um, I, I could never get, wrap my head around this. And this is, you know, cutting funding to, you know, things like uh, campus newspapers, sexual diversity office, uh, student legal clinics. And of all the things the government had to look at to make efficiencies, this was this was the one one of the ones they picked to give you know allow uh, students to opt out of uh, certain fees, and I thought why it, it it just didn't make any sense to me, and I'm sure basically that's what the you know the students will be arguing that you know there's no need for this, and it's 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 probably works at about sixteen hundred dollars a year I think in, in fees for uh, students to. To uh, to have these services, and you know what? It's all part of a university to have these super services: the newspapers, legal clinics. It's all part of the milieu, if you will. And it doesn't make a lick of sense to me why the government would do this. And it and I think you know the uh, students are going to have a, a good uh, good chance of maybe uh, turning this around. Well, what I found, and, and we talked about this in great length, of course, when the government made this announcement some months ago, uh, Richard, I couldn't find anybody who thought this was a good idea. And I'm talking about student associations. I'm talking about the Association of Professors. I'm talking about the universities themselves. All of them said, no, 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 this is wrong. Don't do this. So who, who, who's the motivation for this? I mean, where did this come from? Well, remember what Ford called it. He called it, you know, these fees crazy Marxist nonsense. Yeah. What? <laughs> that was uh, what your reference, of course, was a fundraising letter that yeah, yeah. Uh, that the Conservative Party sent out, signed by Doug Ford, of course, where he called these crazy Marcus, Marxists. Uh, so, and, and again, if, if we're going to get into the legalities of this, uh, now, again, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, that's that's a pretty strong sentiment to put forward to say, look, this had nothing at all to do with the, the welfare of the students. This was really just to, to kind of, you know, push down uh, the, let's face it, what might be contrary voices on a university campus. Well, that's what, it, you know, that's what, you know, the critics are saying. This is all about stifling any opposition, any any voices opposed to government policies. 
I mean, let's face it, students were always, for the most part, you know, you, you, you know, you're at university, you're, th- you're thinking really on your own for the first time, and you, you know, you, you're uh, getting involved in the political, the political process, and it's it's as much part of university as anything else. And you know, sure, they are opposed to, the, they're opposed to the university, they're opposed to the government, and they speak out. That's what you know. That's part of the maturing process. And and I just think he wants to to kill it for no bloody good reason. Well, and therein lies the problem, uh, because I'm, again, they're going to try to justify this, and I, I, I'm hesitant to actually start going back over some of the rhetoric here that uh, that they've talked about here, because the the minister in charge, Marilee Fullerton, uh, that's minister of training colleges and universities, says that uh, this whole initiative was created to make sure students had more control over how they spend their money. Uh, and nobody's buying that. Nobody. No student association, none of the students I've talked to, even individually, think this is a good idea. As a matter of fact, they're concerned uh, about both sides of this. The other part that I haven't even talked about here that I'm sure is going to come up in the conversation if this ever goes to court is the reduced student fees as well, uh, the tuition fees, because that means less revenue for universities, and that means fewer programs available, fewer oh, students are going to be allowed. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a snowball effect that's going on here, and it's not a pretty picture. It always amazes me, and, I, and this is a, a page right out of the Harvard book, the thing that they'll use now to raise money for the party. Right. They use this. They're using the beer store, uh, beer in the corner stores, uh, uh, the, you know, to say, you know, we've got to do this, and they're using that for to raise money. It, I, I don't. I, I think things have just gone a bit wonky here, and this is a particularly prime example of how things have gone off the rails. Why would a government even bother looking at this? Other than to you know to appeal to the the base, I guess, and I'm not sure the base even cares about this. Well, if if you frame it in the fashion that they did, I can see why they're trying to do this. I mean, I, I'm not agreeing with it, but I can understand the rationale. Uh, the easiest way to raise money and the easiest way to solidify your base in any political party is to create an enemy and say, look at it, if you don't support us, if you don't give us money, those people are going to take control. And and he's already done that. By, by classifying the people that are on university campuses as a bunch of Marxists. Uh, and that's supposed to, I scare the, 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 the base, I guess, of his political party. So they're going to say, yeah, you know, we don't want these people. We don't want free thinking. We don't want a discussion of ideas. Uh, we want people that are going to adhere to ideology. All right. We're not to college. I think I was about the furthest thing from a Marxist as you could possibly get. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it just. Like I said, it doesn't make any sense. I, you know, I give the kids great credit for going after this because, you know, they have a right to stand up for themselves and say what the government doing is doing in this case is going to rob us of not only funds but just the privilege of, you know, of going to university in some ways and, and the way in the ways you might learn things in terms of also. Okay, I might read the newspaper at the university for the first time and and say, you know what, that kind of appeals to me. I wouldn't mind getting involved in this. I don't know. It just I'm just shaking my head. Do you know it's interesting? Uh, and again, going back to our, our experiences, or even the, you know of our kids as as they've gone through uh, post secondary education, uh, one of the, the stated goals of that, of course, is to expand your horizons. Uh, and and uh, I know an awful lot of students that uh, that went into university with a particular frame of mind, saying I'm going to go through and I want to do this when I'm finished. 
and they take a right turn or a left turn at some point in the future because they've been exposed to something else and say, oh, wait a minute, uh, I, I think I'm pretty good at that and I like that. That That's really part of the university experience. Well, but that, that comes with an exchange of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, and just think of it when you went to school, university or college, we sat down around a table and had a coffee and shot the breeze and argued politics and argued baseball and hockey and and you know and the, the good and the bad of university and college and how you if it was if you're running it would be different i mean how many of those conversations have been held over the decades and it's all part like you say of expanding your horizons and this i i think kicks the slats out from that this is different from some of the other stuff that we've talked about. Uh, remember, there was a group, uh, which, by the way, is still appealing the decision uh, about the, uh, the the guaranteed income program that uh, the government, uh, during the election campaign, said they were going to continue, and then they, they nixed it as soon as they got into office. Uh, but there was a, 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 the defense, the back and forth on that was, look, at this is a new government. They're allowed to change policy of the previous government. Now, I don't know where that one's going to end up, but but you could see that there was some some legitimacy in both arguments there. Uh, I, I believed in the program myself as well, and I so sillyly, you know, naively, I guess, believed that when Doug Ford said he wasn't going to kill it, that he wasn't going to kill it. But this is a different situation altogether. Uh, this is not a stated policy. Doug Ford didn't run on anything to do about university reform. Uh, this just came down from the sky one day from from Queens Park, and it caught everybody off guard. And, and as I said earlier, I still haven't met anybody right now that thinks outside of the government, uh, the cabinet office, who thinks this is a good idea. Well, look at I've got sympathy for the government trying, trying to you know cut costs, but you know lay out your platform. You know, criticize Mike Harris all you want, but at least he said exactly, except for closing hospitals, he said basically exactly what he was going to do. You could look in the common sense revolution, you could see what the government's plan was. To me, it just doesn't seem that the government has a plan. And and this is and this is a perfect example of that you know did at any point did they ever say well you know one of the first things we'll do when we get into government is you know is is uh, you know allowing students to opt out of fees at universities why yeah I know. we you know we could go on forever but it just doesn't it doesn't wash with people it doesn't make sense basically use your head folks. You know, there's there's bigger there's bigger battles to fight out there. It's certainly not fees at universities. Well, this goes hand in hand, I think, with that rather biting editorial from the Globe and Mail the other day that talked about the Ford government uh, being not just uh, you know cost conscious, but also dishonest in what they're presenting here. And this is, I, I think, as the students are trying to articulate a classic example of this. And and to your point, yeah, we do have a fiscal concern here in this province. Maybe not as severe as, as the Ford government says well, it is. It's pretty severe. It is severe. I'm I'm not going to downplay that at all. But okay, with if, if that's going to be the context for what the government's doing here, explain to me how lowering tuition fees and giving less money to universities is going to help the government's bottom line. It has no impact at all on the government. It's the universities and the students that are going to be impacted. It doesn't. You know, well, maybe they should, maybe they should, you know, look to what uh, uh, Mayor Tory did in Toronto, you know, going door to door in, in conservative ridings and, and asking, telling people what exactly the cuts were doing to the city of Toronto. Boy, they backed off pretty quickly. Maybe the students should go around to the writings in and around their universities and explain to people 
what these cuts are going to do to their university. Maybe maybe I, t- I take that approach because it seemed to work for Tory. Well, and it worked here. I, I, we had Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger on the program yesterday, and of course uh, that was all in, in what you were just talking about. This was all about the government's uh, you know flip flop about uh, the, the cuts that they were going to do for funding to municipalities. Uh, and Tory and Fred Eisenberger and a number of other mayors basically said that we're going to send out a separate letter saying, "Here's your taxes are going up. Here's why, and it's the fault of the government." And they don't want that kind of bad publicity, oh, so they no. rolled back on that. So your point's well taken. Maybe that's what the students have to do here is get proactive. Yep. You, know, you may start seeing students uh, going up and down the streets in, in Westdale over the next couple of days saying, look, it, uh, you know, this, this is wrong. This is going to have a, a negative effect on universities. I'd also like to hear the universities and, and student associations speak up about this. There, there are two groups here that are taking this legal action. But I think there needs to be a louder voice about this, too. To under, way too often, Richard, we see this happen, and we don't understand the ramifications until we're way down the road and say, boy, I wish we hadn't done that. Well, you know what? It would be nice to all the baby boomers and, and, and people after that, you know, to go after the government and say, look, it, I went to university back in 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever, and I appreciated what these fees did for me. And, and you know they seem to listen to uh, so-called adults more than more than they do university students. So maybe it's time for people that went to university and colleges to speak up. Well, and let's face it, the students we've talked to that have expressed some concerns about their financial situation. None of them talked about the student fees as as part of the problem. They might have talked about tuition. Or, and more importantly, about student debt. And the government doesn't do anything about that. In fact, what they've done is made it even more difficult to pay back student debt by giving them a shorter time frame and no grace period. So, I mean, again, I'm trying to find the upside here for the students or for the university, and I don't see it. Well, the, the university kids have been lambasted for what I think is no good reason for fees, like you talk about reducing the amount of time they have to pay back and, and, and you know, or availability to uh, get loans or bursaries. Um, I, why go after university kids? They're already hard pressed to try and make ends. Well, pay. according according to, to the premier, it's because they're all Marxists. Well, I, I think a few university people would be students would be surprised to hear that. Yeah, but you know that's that's his approach to it, and you know, uh, he's, like we said in before, he's like a bull in a china shop. I mean, if he. He thinks a certain way, and, and that's, uh, that's the way it's going to be. Well, uh, the students say they want to have some action on this before the school year starts in September. We'll see how the courts deal with this. Uh, Badger, as always, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Okay, Bill, take it easy. You betcha. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, who covered Queen's Park for many, many years, uh, and has seen the ups and downs, but, boy, this is a rather tumultuous time for this Ford government, and it's starting to be reflected in the polls, as we talked about earlier this week as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, yesterday on the program, Finance Minister Vic Fideli uh, talked to us about the uh, Ford government's decision to tear up the beer store contract that uh, the previous uh, provincial government had signed with the company that runs the beer store. Uh, And he told us at the time that, uh, well, the rationalization for that, he said, was two-pronged. First of all, he says Ontario has the highest beer prices in the country. And second, that it's a monopoly and uh, it's not fair to consumers. And he doesn't feel as if there's going to be any financial ramifications. Well... Uh, number. By the way, we had that interview up on our website, and we actually put it on our uh, on our our blog, and uh, on the podcast too. So a number of people have heard this. Well, there's some pushback on this right now. 
uh, with the government wanting to get out of this beer store contract, the company that owns the, the beer store, that runs and operates the beer store, has come out with a report of their own, which talks about the ramifications of what's going to happen to beer sales in corner stores and how is that going to affect the industry and how it's going to affect you and I as consumers. Joining us to talk about the report is uh, one of the co-authors, Dr. Deborah J. Aaron, Senior Managing Director with the Ancura Consulting Group, uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Doctor, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. And uh, we'll get here in just a second, obviously, uh, to try to find out what's going to be happening here in the ramifications. Uh, and, and this is not unusual, of course. We always get into a situation where there's going to be some back and forth, and and in both sides have their talking points. And, and I know the Premier's been pretty vocal about this, too. Uh, it was rather interesting in, in reading some of the uh, the media coverage about some of the Premier's comments uh, about this particular thing. Uh, Premier Ford says, uh, this is a quote, the beer store wants to protect its monopoly. Big surprise, right? Uh, this is a fundraising letter, actually, that they've put out uh, that talks about uh, the government and, and, and how they are doing the quote-unquote right thing by consumers by going after this. I think we've got uh, Dr. Aaron all set to go here. Doctor, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, the, the numbers here, because right? numbers do count when it comes into situations like this. And, and there are a couple of things that the finance minister told us on the program yesterday that I'd like you to get your comment on. One of them, of course, is that he, in his opinion anyway, uh, Ontario has the highest beer prices in Canada, and that's not fair to the consumer. And you've got some different numbers, though, I understand. I do. I've been studying the beer market in Ontario and other provinces for, for a number of years. And uh, the fact is that once you take out provincial taxes, which are much higher in Ontario than in uh, Quebec or Alberta, which are the other provinces I've studied, beer prices in Ontario are actually substantially lower than in the other provinces I've studied. So uh, looking at comprehensive data on beer in bottles and cans in Ontario at the beer store, Those prices are 13% lower than um, beer prices in Quebec and 23% cheaper than beer prices in Alberta. And that's after you take out the the provincial taxes, which, of course, are going to be affecting the prices that consumers see and their their, perception of the prices that they pay. Well, that was one of the concerns I had when I I talked to the minister about this yesterday. Uh, he suggested it's obviously a bit more competition. That's one of the phrases they always use in situations like this, uh, that it's going to be a better deal for the consumers and prices are going to get lower. Well, not if they don't re- reduce the, the provincial tax, and I hadn't heard anything from the premier or the finance minister that they had any intention of doing that. So provincial taxes in Ontario are about a third, about 33% of the price of beer uh, in Ontario, and that's not counting the federal taxes. That's the, just the provincial taxes. Whereas in Quebec and Alberta, it's about 23%. So it's quite a substantial difference. And um, you know what consumers see when they pay for beer at the register includes all of those taxes, and and that would be, uh, you know, you'd expect that to affect consumers' perception. It's just not the fact, though, about what uh, you know what prices really are once you've taken account of those taxes. There's another element to this, too, that, and I've heard this phrase used, and I'm sure you have as well, uh, over the last little while as the government tries to articulate their case in this situation. Uh, and they talk about the the beer store being a monopoly. Uh, and I understand that, and I think everybody understands the, the meaning of that word. And, and, and obviously the characterization here is that the only place you can buy beer in this province is at the beer store. Well, that's not true. 
Uh, and it hasn't been true for quite some time. I mean, LCBO stores sell a, a certain kinds of beer. I mean, they don't have the same variety maybe as as the beer store would. Uh, it's already been in, in grocery stores and, and some other stores for quite some time right now. So I, I, it's it's really, I would think anyway, Deborah, an unfair characterization to say that the beer store is a, is a total monopoly. It is an unfair characterization. And um, it's, it's unfair for a couple of reasons, including the ones that you said. But in addition, I'm an economist, and what competition means is that the brewers set prices in competition with each other, and that's precisely what they do. The brewers set their own retail prices that will be the prices that appear at the beer store and so and at LCBO. Um, and when they set those prices, they're setting them knowing that their beer is going to be on the shelf next to other brewers' beer and that they have to set prices to compete. So there is competition in the market. I think that what's notable as well about the point you made regarding the availability of beer um, in grocery stores since about 2015 is that all of the data and information that the Retail Council of Canada um, relied on which is the report that the Hughes report relied on, is based in British Columbia. They, they never presented evidence of any effect um, on prices or jobs or GDP based on evidence they must have, data they must have, on sales and jobs in stores in Ontario. All of their um, pronouncements about the effect of this change on jobs and on GDP is based on British Columbia. So to your point then, we really don't have any hard data about what's going on here in Ontario. I do. Which is why we invited you on here today. Uh, I appreciate that. As I said, the analysis that I've, I conducted and that I've conducted, um, I've been looking at this market for several years, is based on um, comprehensive data on beer store sales um, of all beer in bottles and cans um, for comparing that to a comprehensive look at beer sales, prices, and volumes in other provinces. So my evidence is based on Ontario. Um, the, the evidence that you've heard from the Retail Council of Canada and from the Hughes Report relying on it is not. Deborah, one of the other characterizations I hear from people that are, are supportive of this, and, and let's face it, there are a lot of people who are supportive of this, because they see this as as, as a, an equal playing field, for instance, with what we see in the United States and, and some of the markets in New York State and other places, uh, where you can go across there and you can go to the you know the top uh, supermarket there, and hey, uh, you know, such and such, you know, Paps Blue Ribbon's on sale this week. Uh is, is that even doable? I mean, I, my understanding is that the laws and the pricing uh, with Canadian beer, because of the restrictions and the taxes here, is much different than what you see in the States. Well, uh, the, the laws are, are significantly different. Um, I, you know, I think you'd have to speak to the government about, um, you know, their appetite for changing the laws, but... What I can tell you on the basis of my own analysis and my own studies is that under the current circumstances, under the current laws and retail distribution system in Ontario, um, the citizens of Ontario are enjoying substantially lower beer prices after you account for the tax differences than what customers in Alberta or Quebec are paying. 
We also saw when the government tried to initiate this buck a beer idea uh, not too long after the election, uh, there wasn't much of a buy-in from the industry. And I'm not just talking about the major brewers. I'm talking about the, the microbreweries, too. Uh, that This is, in, in 2019, is just unrealistic to think that you can actually do that. I mean, I, I don't think anybody in this business wants to sell their product at a loss. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone would voluntarily choose to sell their product at a loss. Um, I think that what... You know, the, the situation, the mechanism for retail distribution of beer today um, in Ontario allows the microbrewers and allows um, all brewers to access the retail distribution network. Um, they can access it on a store-by-store basis. They, of course, have to pay a fee, um, just as in the U.S. or anywhere else. Brewers face um, some costs of distribution. But they are, by law, entitled to distribution at any um, beer store outlet. And um, so they they do have access to the distribution network. From that standpoint, and let's look at the impact it might have on microbreweries. Again, the speculation is, is look, if they put this in every corner store that wants it, which is probably going to be most of them, uh, it's going to have more opportunity for access to, to market for the microbreweries. But you've got restricted shelf space in a lot of these variety stores, corner stores, whatever the case might be. Are they just going to go with the best sellers, or are they going to give an opportunity for microbreweries? In other words, is this going to be good or bad for the beer industry? Well, that's a good question. I think that um, that remains to be seen. You're quite right that individual stores would, to my knowledge, would not have an obligation to make space available to small brewers. And so they face their own constraints, and they have to choose how to allocate it and whether they want to give up shelf space from the big sellers to make space available to the microbrewers. What I've seen in my data, um, which might surprise some of your listeners, is that uh, I've, I've looked at this in Ontario and Quebec. What I find is that the um, concentration of consumption of beer among the top four best-selling beers is much greater in Quebec than in Ontario, which means that if you think about how much um, consumers are diversifying their choices of beer, it's actually much less in Quebec than in Ontario. Well, it's a much different picture than the uh, province seems to be painting with the data that they've been putting out on this. Uh, Deborah, i got to go. We're just about out of time. Is there a place, a, a webpage where they can go to get some of this information? Uh, let's see. I believe that my report is available uh, at the Beer Store website, I believe. Okay. Well, we'll send them off to that, and they can Google that and, and follow the links to get to this. And it might uh, give many people a much different perspective on this. Uh, Dr. Deborah Aaron, thank you so much, Deborah, for the time today. Really appreciate the input. Oh, thank you very much. Take care. Take care. What, what about the beer store itself as a business? And I, I don't know that the Premier characterizes this as a monopoly that needs to be broken up. That, that seems to be the talking point that they're going on. But we're also talking about a number of people that work in that enterprise. And and I mentioned yesterday when we had Marvin Ryder on at the DeGroote School of Business talking about uh, the impact this is going to have on the beer industry. That also has to include a discussion about employment. And uh, to that point, we were uh, glad to bring uh, Smokey Thomas, president of OPSU, uh, back into the conversation because they do uh, have a, a stake in this as well. Smokey, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us today. Oh, no, thanks for having me on, Bill. I appreciate it. Well, let's let's talk about this. We just had a, an interesting and I think a very enlightening discussion with uh, Dr. Aaron uh, with some data from Ontario beer industry. 
uh, suggesting that a lot of the talking points that the government is giving us here about how we have the quote-unquote highest beer prices in, in the country is not really true. It's really we have the highest percentage of tax on our beer, which is actually elevates the price. Uh, they're not going to do anything about that. But the other element to this, too, is that, look at this is going to be a good deal for consumers. Now, I'm not so sure that's even the case because I haven't seen any, any data that suggests this. But let's talk about the number of people that work in the beer store across the province of Ontario right now. Uh, if the government moves forward on this, does this lead to the demise of, of, of employment for these people? Okay, well, they're represented by United Food and Commercial Workers Union. They represent the beer store employees. Yeah. Uh, but I do, and you know, and they've been... They've entered into this debate as well, so it would be good to get uh, Wayne Hanley or, you know, get somebody from UFCW on. They have a leader in the beer store. But they're, uh, well, it could have a very negative effect. It, it just, if you really spread the, you know, sale of alcohol out to corner stores and everything else, uh, it, could, it could have a direct impact on the beer stores. And, you know, even it's a private monopoly, but, uh, you know, so I like public versus private, but. It is very well run, and it is a good experience, and they really have stepped their game up. I mean, they lived up to what the Liberals told them to live up to. So, I mean, uh, I think they're doing a good job. I don't, you know, this guy's going to take this thing apart uh, based on some sort of uh, logic that everybody wants to have a beer in their hand at 9 o'clock in the morning anywhere in Ontario you like it. And the other thing, though, is you never really, you don't hear them talk about. If convenience stores do take beer and wine, um, you know, there is, I, I listened to Cut the Tail End of your previous interview there, she's right on. But the one, the other thing a lot of people don't think about is every 15, 16, 17 year old that works in the corner store is going to be out of a job because they can't handle alcohol. Well, that's what, what that's one of the things I asked the minister about yesterday when he was on our program, Smokey. I said, what, what does this do for employment in those stores? I mean, who's going to be qualified to sell this? And I've even seen this with the last couple of years now at our Sobeys in Ancaster. I mean, you know, there's one register, by the way, that says this is the beer line. If you want to buy beer, you got to go to this register. Uh, and, and obviously there's only one person or two people that are qualified to do this. Uh, so what happens to the other people that are working there? What about the other cashiers? Yeah. Well, you think about a corner store. They're not going to have two people on duty. Not well, usually, no. You wouldn't make, you know, you wouldn't make any money. So I think, the, you know, the teenager that's, you know, trying to make a few bucks extra and gain some work experience, and then you put all that on a resume, right? You know, customer relations, all this stuff looks good in the resume. They get shut out. And and I don't see it creating all these jobs he's talking about. I, I, just, I can't wrap my mind around how, if you put it in corner stores, it's going to create more jobs because there's people working in there already. They don't create more jobs if they add cornflakes and Cheerios on this. You know what I mean? Like, it just it doesn't compute in my mind. It's not a job creator. The, uh, I, you know, they'll... The way it's all unfolded here, I honestly believe the RCMP should be called in to investigate the lobbying efforts. It is, you know, you got Randy Hillier alluding to illegal lobbying, and he does appear to be talking about about the beer store lobby. And what I know about it, if it's not illegal, it is certainly stinky beyond belief and very, very unethical. The people that have influenced the government's decision have a direct link to the government, you know, they had direct links. They're, um, they should, you know, they're definitely in a conflict of interest situation. So, uh, he, you know, Ford, I think, is going to take a hammering on this one when all the details come out. Well, and and to, to your point, though, Smokey, and we had this uh, discussion with uh, Dr. Aaron just a couple of minutes ago before you joined us, 
I, I think it's an unfair characterization to call the beer store a monopoly in, in the truest sense yeah. of the word because I, I can go to the LCBO and buy beer. I can go to the grocery store and buy beer. Uh, I can go to the grocery store and buy wine. I mean, that's available. Now, maybe not, as we mentioned, maybe not to the same extent, maybe not the same variety of product, but it's still there if you want it. Uh, so, I mean, uh, it, it, to call these guys a monopoly that says, well, if you want beer, the only place you can go is the beer store, it's simply not true in Ontario. No, and I, I agree at that point exactly. And the and same as the, the LCBO is not a, uh, a monopoly either. There's agency stores, like you say, there's beer and wine available. Uh, so it's a, you know, they're they're pretty uh, close, you know, not close, you know, almost a closed shop, but, but both of them do do a good job. Like, so... I don't know if Doug Ford what his fascination with alcohol is. I really, you know, I mean, it, and it occupies. He does it in such a way that it occupies so much thinking and so much time by people like you, me, uh, reporters everywhere, uh, concerned people that we're kind of missing a bunch of other stuff that he's doing. Right. So I don't know. You know, if it's a diversion, it's a very, very costly diversion. Well, I got I got one minute left here. I got to ask you to comment okay. on someone thing because uh, you've been around negotiating tables for a while, Smokey, uh, in various forms. Uh, one of the other things the minister talked to us about yesterday is he said, "Look, at, we're going to pass legislation to do this to rip up the contract, and there will be no penalty, no cost." Uh, that yeah. seems a little odd to me. Well, who would want to do business in Ontario? And in the budget, they're retroactively killing a whole bunch of lawsuits that are there against the government right now. This, these actions, in my view, are unconstitutional. And I don't know if the feds can do anything about them, but to tear up a contract, and it's all right. So he always says the 407 is a bad deal. Tear that one up. Tear that one up and bring it back in-house. If, that, if he thinks he has that much power, why doesn't he do it through the 407, which would reap billions of dollars to the taxpayers? So I think as... You know, he he has that notwithstanding clause he keeps threatening, but I think what he's doing is constitutionally wrong. I, I have we I talked to lawyers because we're probably going to get into constitutional challenges with them. So he's creating years and years of fighting. It's like he is the ungovernment. It's like he hates government. He treats the province like his own. He really is bordering on being a, di- being a dictator. These laws are unconstitutional. I do hope some people, brighter minds than mine, uh, take them on and, and challenge them on this stuff. And uh, Well, a lot of them have already. We just talked about some of those yes. court challenges that have already come forward. Smokey, thanks as always. We'll stay in touch. No, thanks. I appreciate it. Take, take care. care. Smokey Thompson, uh, uh, Thomas, rather, uh, the president of OPSU. Uh, and as he mentioned, there's other unions involved in this, too. And, and you got to bet that there's going to be some kind of legal action. Somebody, uh, not unlike what the Students Association and others have done about this, too. So uh, see you in court. I guess that seems to be the mantra at Queen's Park these days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a uh, display and a, a rally uh, last night at the Barton Street Jail. Uh, which is officially, of course, the Hamilton Wentworth Detention Center. Uh, and it's uh, having to do with the number of people that are dying from overdoses right inside the jail. Uh, I know this this just leads to more questions about how the stuff gets in there, uh, how is it being distributed, uh, what kind of policing is going on within those uh, the confines of these institutions. Well, these uh, people that showed up last night for this rally are bonded together, but they're bonded by tragedy because they've all lost loved ones in very similar circumstances. One of them is Amy McKechnie, who was the sister to Ryan McKechnie, who died of an overdose in 2017 at the jail. Amy joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to tell their story. Amy, thank you for the time. Uh, so good to have you back on the program and, and talk about what's going on. I was Thanks hoping for having at, me, Bill. I was hoping at some point, Amy, we could have you on to say, look at they're starting to, they're reforming this, they're getting this done. But here... <laughs> 
uh, the government's finally listened to you. We're not there yet, are we? No, we're no, we're very far from that. That would be that would be fabulous to be on and and to be able to say that and say that we're saving lives, but unfortunately, we're not there yet. And and the problem, maybe for those who are not fully aware of the problem, uh, this. This is this is tragic in in so many different ways. I mean, these are the people that are sometimes incarcerated, sometimes who are awaiting trial on charges, and so, uh, but but they find themselves in an environment uh, that, well, frankly, can be, uh, well, tragic in so many ways, but at the same time, very very dangerous for people. Exactly. What happened to Ryan? Uh, Ryan passed from an accidental overdose. He was found unresponsive in his cell on June 29th, 2017, from fentanyl. How does that stuff get in there? I'd like to know the same. I mean, we know the inmates bring it in, but there's there's other ways it's coming in as well. It's not just the inmates bringing it in. And there, there's, I mean, policies need to be changed and things, the guards need more help. You've talked about this. You've researched this. This is something that you probably never wanted to know anything about, but you forced yourself to do this uh, in Ryan's memory and then the memory of others. And, and and as we mentioned off the top here, Amy, you, you've bonded with other people uh, because this is not a, a uniquely Hamilton problem, is it? No, it's not. It's all over Ontario. It's all over on, all over Canada, but it's a big problem in Ontario. EMDC is having a big problem, and there's a problem in Niagara and Toronto South Detention. I mean, it's everywhere. Well, we talked just a couple of months ago with another family that uh, that lost a, a loved one, a, a brother and a son uh, in Niagara in similar situations, uh, who, by the way, and that that was awaiting trial because I know some people say, well, these, these guys are all criminals. Not all exactly. of them are. They're not all no. criminals. No, they're not. A lot of them, I mean, I think the percentage is 70% that are legally innocent, they're considered, because they haven't gone to trial. They haven't been convicted of anything. But they find themselves in this environment, uh, and, yep. and <laughs> what the 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 peer pressure, the, the 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 stuff that's going on within these walls that we never hear about must be just overwhelming for some of the people that are in there. It yeah, and people that are on the outside that that don't see it or or live it can't believe that it actually happens when it does. I mean, it's peer pressure and and it's boredom. There's nothing for them to do in there. There's no programming. They took all the programming away. So they sit there 24-7 with nothing to do. Did and there's you, drugs coming in, and, you know, they. I'm sure a lot of them have demons they're hiding from, and the drugs help with that. Well, to that point, uh, e- even if somebody said, look, i got to get off this stuff, I don't want to do this anymore, is there assistance in the, in these institutions for people to do that? Is there is there is there somebody who can act as a counselor to try to guide them? Um, not so much as a counselor, and as for them getting stuff to help with, um, withdrawals and stuff, unless you've been on it on the street and been prescribed it from a doctor on the street, they, they won't give it to you on the inside. So where does somebody go in a situation like this? They're really stuck in, in this environment. There's this hostile environment in many cases, yes. and, and they're exposed to this. Um, and the stuff is coming in on a pretty pretty regular basis. Now, now we have talked to some of the people that work there. Now, a lot of them, as you know, Amy, uh, don't want to go on the record on this, but they will talk to us anecdotally. Uh, and try to give us some perspective on this. And uh, I, I think it's a fair characterization from the conversations I've had with some of the people that work in these environments to say, look, at the people that work there, the the, the guards, et cetera, are just as frustrated as you are but, but that this is going on, uh, and they feel oftentimes defenseless to, to be able to do much about it. Exactly. And, and I mean, I'm, I don't think that I would want to be in their position either to have to deal with all these 
locked up hostile people who have nothing to do day in and day out. And and I mean as well with the overcrowding, like they they're dealing with people who are sleeping three to four people in a cell that was built for one. So I don't know how humane it is to have somebody sleeping with their head near a toilet, but did just did do you get any response at all from from the government about this and 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 this is not just a unique problem for the this uh, the Ford government. I mean, this has been going on for years. I mean, uh, as you say, the tragedy with Ryan with your brother actually occurred back in 2017. So this has gone from government to government to government, and 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 as not just in Hamilton, but as you say, in just about every detention center right across the province right now. Yes. Uh, you would think that this would be a priority for a government to say we have to do something about this. People are actually dying in these cells. They don't seem to care that they're dying. They they look at them as just another criminal or another junkie. Well, they're in jail. They did the crime due the time, or you know they're an addict. So who cares? They would have died on the street anyways. That's the way a lot of people look at this. That's their mentality, and the government as well. The government seems to just want to pass the buck from one to the next. But. If if it was somebody who was not in that environment and not in that institution, though, Amy, who said, look it, I've got to get some help. Uh, there are programs. Well, I was going to say they were here in Hamilton, but obviously uh, we're not even sure if those are going to ongo- be ongoing anymore because the province has cut back money for public health, so we're not yep. sure if those are going to continue. So that that's kind of the double jeopardy of this, isn't it? I mean, even if you do want to get help and do something about this and try to change and, and turn your life around, we're not so sure that the programs are available for those people on the outside or on the inside. Exactly, and the programs that, that we may have still available, there's, there's red tape to go through, and there's waiting lists, you know, like months and, and years to get into these programs. And clearly, from what we've heard from Queen's Park, there doesn't seem to be very much in the way of support for these sorts of programs either. No, there's not. I mean, Sylvia Jones said that we need more than provincial help, so uh, myself and as well as a few other families, we went, to, we went straight to Justin Trudeau, who sent us computer-generated responses stating that it's... Um, provincial and federal problem. It's not his problem. So he passed it off to uh, the next person. What's Minister Jones' rationale for this? Uh, I mean, it, there's a, there is a legitimate point there that this is supposed to be a provincial responsibility. These are not federal institutions. Uh, exactly. But again, that's buck passing. I get that to a certain extent. Uh, when people are dying and losing their lives to the numbers that we've seen here, uh, you'd like to think that every level of government in some way, shape, or form is going to try to offer some assistance. But you've got to be awfully frustrated when the minister in charge simply says it's not our job, it's the, the federal sh- government should do something about this. Yeah, she says that she needs more help. Well, so we went above her head then to get more help, and that more help turned us down and said, well, no, that's not our job. Well, so what are we supposed to do? Who do we turn to? Who's going to help? Who cares? Well, these are government decisions, and, and I, I understand yeah. that like, I don't care what your political stripe is, who you support, who you don't support. The government of the day, and right now it's the Ford government in Queen's Park, they determine where the money is going to be spent. We saw this happen, and I had a huge discussion with Minister McLeod about this a couple of months ago, about the autism funding. Uh, and I know that's kind of going off on a different tangent, but I mean... The, the, no, I, I support that one as well. So do I. And But the rationale that we got from the government was, well, there's not enough money in the budget. Well, that's, that's I'm sorry, that's BS, because they oh. set the budget. Exactly. So why is there money in the budget for beer? Yeah. There's all these problems with drugs, but we're pushing to have beer stores open later or beer in corner stores and the bars open at nine o'clock in the morning. Why is there money in the budget for that? But there's not money in the budget to save somebody's life. 
let's let's put some uh, some perspective on this too. I mean, the, your rally, of course, was last night, uh, but last week we carried a story here on CHML, as you know. Uh, about the seven different inmates from that jail, from the Hamilton-Wentworth Detention Center, uh, suspected overdoses. Now, In a four-day span, yes. Seven in four days. Yep, I mean, but that's, nobody cares. It's, now, they're not all deaths. Sometimes they're overdoses, and sometimes yep. they get there on time, and that's great. Thankfully. Thankfully, Thankfully, in situations like that. But that's not fixing the problem at all, because those people, once they get better, are going to go back into those institutions many times and be exposed to the same thing again. Yep, exactly. It's it's a revolving door. Why is it, though, and, and this is an answer I'd like to get from the minister, why is it that if, if somebody on the outside says that, look, it, uh, I have a problem with addiction, I need to get some help, it's it's considered by the medical profession to be a sickness, not a crime, exactly. but yep. a sickness. Yet, once they go behind those doors, all of a sudden, it's it's a crime. It's, yep. And, and the, it's it's not being treated as an illness at all. It's the stigma of people being a criminal or an inmate in jail. A lot of those people are in there because of drug charges. They've done petty crimes or whatever it is to feed their addiction. There's, they're not getting the help that they need. What, what do you hear from some of the other families when you get together like this? Do you share stories? Do you talk about the, the shared experiences? Um, yeah, like some of the families were saying, you know, my son was clean or, you know, they were trying to get help, and but they're stuck in there with nothing to do and... Like you say, the peer pressure that's coming in and it's nonstop. I've seen some of the signs and, and some of the people that are there. There's another story that I wanted to to, to bring to our listeners' attention too, and that's uh, one of the people that I know. I'm sure you're familiar with, and that's Lynn Pijo, who is uh, yep uh, actually doing something about this. She's being proactive about this, isn't she? Yes, she is. She's walking from London to Queens Park. 184 kilometers, and she'll be yep. st- stopping along the way because there are some uh, detention centers along the way, yep. uh, and uh, she'll be doing this to raise awareness for this. And uh, it's a noble cause, and, and, and we wish her well in doing this. The concern, I guess, she's got, and you have, Amy, and certainly I think anybody who cares about this, and that should be all of us, is that what's going to happen once she gets to Queen's Park? Exactly. I mean, um, I, th- I'm, I believe she has a meeting with Kevin Yard, but... Are they going to welcome her? Are they going to do anything? Is it going to bring change? Her brother Jamie had been uh, keeping a journal of things that happened in EMDC. And that, that must have told a pretty bleak story, I would think. I Yeah, I haven't seen it or, or heard much of it myself, but yes, from what I'm told, it, it, it did. This, this again, I, I, again, the frustration that we seem to feel here is, is because this is a no-brainer. I still don't understand why the government isn't jumping all over this and say we've got to do something about it. This is a, a safety issue as much as anything else, and 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 we don't want to put the blame where it doesn't belong. We don't want to blame the staff there; they're understaffed. Just about every detention center, every staffer I've talked to complains about the long hours, about the overtime, about the the fact that there aren't enough people to look after this. And then you've got the institution itself. Uh, exactly. As you mentioned, you've got jails and jail cells that are built for one person, and you've got four or five people in these some places, and, and they stay there. I mean, there's not much else for them to do. Uh, you're asking for trouble when you put people in like that. It's just like packing them in like sardines. Of yeah. course, it's gonna, there's going to be a pushback on that. Yeah, exactly. So what what do we do? How, how do you carry on here? How do you uh, go to next steps? I mean, we've tried to create some awareness. You've talked about this. Uh, you had the rally last night in front of the jail. 
uh, you know, that's that's wonderful. But once you break up and go home, there's, there's got to be this empty feeling inside to say, I, I'm not so sure that we've actually helped here. I'm not so sure that we've we've moved the yardsticks very far. I think you're right in my brain. That's how I feel all the time, but I have to keep on pushing. I can't let my brother's death be in vain, and as well as all these other people. So I keep pushing. I keep searching for more and trying to find what I can do. I keep sending messages to the government and hoping that they'll respond and do something. And I know a lot of these other families do as well. Have you had discussions with some of the local MPPs? Um, Yes, we're pretty close with Monique Taylor, actually. She supports us all the way. Does this get raised in the legislature at all? Is there any discussion about this, any debate about this? I believe they have brought it up a few times. And how does the government respond to this? I mean, they can't they can't really turn their back on it, can they? I don't know. I mean, they're the ones in charge, right? This is their job. And so far, they're not doing a very good job of it. They're not doing anything. The concern they, here... Go ahead. They, they say that they've implemented 80% of the recommendations from the last inquest, but we're not seeing it. Yeah, I heard that story the other day, too. And I'm, I'm, and again, when I saw that story and I saw the press release from the government, I, I did, again, reach out uh, to some of the people who work in these institutions. Uh, and they said, no, that's 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 not true at all. It's just not going on. But I Yeah, mean, they, so if, if they've implemented all these recommendations, then why are we still having all these overdoses and all these deaths and the overcrowding? Lack of security, understaffed. And overcrowding. I mean, those are the big yep. three things that the government needs to address. And and yep. the information I've received on this, Amy, is that they haven't done much about any of those three. No, they haven't. And they haven't given the guards sufficient training either. As much as Sylvia likes to to claim that they have, they gave the guards um, little to no training for the the body scanners that they have. It's It's basically a computer program for their training. Well, listen, I'm, I'm hoping that next time you come on the program, it's because there's some good news on this and not another tragedy. Uh, that would I, be nice. I, I, I want to thank you for, for staying strong on this uh, for the sake of, your, of, of obviously, for Ryan and for others. And uh, God forbid that there should be any others like this, but I'm, I'm pretty nervous about what the outcome might be. Uh, yeah, I, I don't feel great about it either. I mean, there was, uh, there was two more calls to the, the detention center when we were there. There was a VA, VSA when we were there. Amy, stay in touch uh, and stay strong on this, will you? Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Appreciate the time again. Uh, Amy McKechnie, of course, uh, whose uh, brother Ryan died of an overdose in the jail back in 2017, and others, sadly, have gone down the same road. And it is time for the government to do something about this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.